This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. The 13th annual Education Next poll will be released tomorrow, August 20th, 2019. I'm unable to share the embargoed findings from the poll, but I'm pleased to discuss the methods used by the survey director for our poll, um, who is Michael Henderson, a professor of political science and research director of the Public Policy Research Lab at the Manship School of Mass Communications at Louisiana State University. Thank you, Michael, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks for having me. So, Michael, uh, first of all, let's start with the basics. Uh, How many people were surveyed in the 2019 version of the poll? So our our main sample is just over 3,000. It's uh, 3,046 respondents um, who are representative of uh, the adult population of the United States. Uh, and it includes uh, large oversamples of uh, three groups in particular, as well as a general population sample, and those are teachers, of whom we have 667, African-Americans, of whom we have 597, and Hispanics, of whom we have 648. Well, so you have these oversamples, but doesn't that contaminate your overall representativeness if if you are interviewing more of them than would normally fall into the sample? Well, it would if all you did was rely on raw survey responses, um, but what we do and the survey company we use does and, and all legitimate polling does is we weight uh, the respondents um, after the fact. Um, uh, and we do this for a few reasons. One is to adjust for you know normal differences that can result in a probability sample um, you know that's randomly selected that might be a little bit uh, overrepresentative of one group or another just from random uh, processes, um, and also to adjust for potential differences in non-response, and in our case, also to adjust for these oversamples. And so what it basically does, the intuition behind it is, uh, people in oversampled groups, when you want to analyze the overall sample as a whole, uh, the people in the oversampled groups are essentially downweighted. They count um, for less of a share of the overall results than they do of the, of the sample. Well, that all makes sense to me. So, uh, but now this poll is done online, and lots of polls out there have traditionally been done on the telephone. So, I take it you believe in the online polling technique. So, can you, how, how do you contrast them? What are the advantages of the telephone and the online options? Yeah, so this is, yeah, as you know, you know, a survey research is going through a, a transition right now. It's a, it's a changing sector. Um, uh, just the technology uh, and the costs associated with surveys are changing a lot. And for a long time, um, until I would say pretty recently, people considered um, uh, uh, telephone surveys where you have a live interviewer um, and the sampling's done through essentially something like random digit dialing. Uh, that was that was considered the gold standard because it was it was the way that on the sampling side you could best hit this ideal of of a true probability sample. Um, but those are no longer um, as as efficient as as they used to be, either from the research goal of getting a a representative sample or from a cost side. So telephone surveys these days tend to cost a lot more money because you're paying for for human interviewers if you're really trying to hit that live interviewer gold standard. 
Um, and, and also, the response rates on telephone surveys have been in, in tremendous decline over the last few decades. Um, in fact, many, many even high-quality polls are still coming in with response rates below 10%. Um, so there's issues on the phone side. That's not to say that just any option to the phone is, is equally good, um, but it's one of the justifications for why people have turned to look for online surveys. Uh, but there's a range of different um, ways you could go about doing online surveys. Uh, what, what's really good about the, the way this survey is, is conducted is we're still able to get that probability sample. And as you know, that's really a key part of, of representativeness. It's really two things you need to do to have a representative survey. You want to get a probability sample and uh, if, if possible, and then you also want to weight your data after. i got to ask you about this word probability. What, what do you mean by this when you say you have to get a probability sample? Sure. A probability sample is just, it's just another way of saying a, a random sample, right? So you don't want people that end up in your survey to have ended up in your survey for a particular reason other than that you asked them and they're willing to take a survey, right? So if it's not, if it's not a probability sample, if it's not a random sample, um, then there may be biases in your results because the kind of person who's going to opt in and choose to come take a survey, um, you know, of their own accord rather than being selected on a random basis, they might be different from, from the population as a whole. And in that case, you could end up with, with biases in your results. So a random sample or a probability sample is a way where you try to control the process of who gets into your sample where basically it's just a matter of chance, right? So someone ends up in the survey based on chance rather than based on some characteristic that might, that might uh, skew the results you find. So how do you get a probability sample? Then how do you, how do you get people at random to do this online? Right, that, and that's the key challenge. And with a lot of online polling, um, it's, it's done through non-probability sampling, and they try to adjust for that with the weights at the back end. Um, but the way we do this is, is different. It, it tries to maintain that probability sampling aspect. And the way that, that works is the, the knowledge panel, that's the division we use, the division of, uh, of Ipsos, which is a, a survey research firm. And the way the knowledge panel works is they start – offline. They start by using what's called address-based sampling, which is basically a list of all the residential addresses in the United States. And they go and solicit, they randomly select households off that, off that list. And they go to those households and ask them, would you be willing to take surveys periodically for us online? So you have the probability sampling right there. People get recruited in based on, based on a, a just random, random selection. Um, the problem is if they don't have, right, so the normal, one of the concerns with o online surveys is what do you do about people who don't have Internet access? And now Internet access is growing in the United States, but it's not 100%. Um, and so you don't want to leave people, those people out because they may be different in, in some important way. So what the Knowledge Panel does is it essentially provides Internet access and the, 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 the computer hardware to take surveys online if the person they randomly selected doesn't already have it. Um, and so that way you don't have what we call in the business coverage error, like you're not leaving anybody out systematically because they, they don't have the technology to participate in the survey, and you're randomly selecting them in through that probability sampling. And then they go online and they periodically, once or twice a month, um, will go on and take a survey about different topics, and, and that's how we administer our survey. Well, what if they say, no, I don't want to be part of your survey? You know, you go to their door, you knock on their door, you, you're very sweet to them, and they, and they say no. 
Right. That's and that that certainly does does happen. Um, it can happen in really in in the way the survey is conducted. It can happen in in sort of two different stages. There's the overall. There's that initial solicitation to get them to be recruited into the knowledge panel, and someone could say, "No, I don't want to take surveys," um, or um, even people in the knowledge panel may choose not to take the survey that they're then right. So we have the knowledge panel, which is you know forty thousand or so people across the United States, and then for a survey like ours, they sample from that. Um, and so somebody at that second sampling stage might be like, no, I'm not interested in taking this survey. So that happens. You know, that's it's called non-response, and it's it's an issue um, in any survey. Uh, but there's there's two things to keep in mind about that with respect to our to our results here. The first is that um, response rates are actually pretty good for the way the knowledge panel is constructed. Um, uh, they have pr- pretty high. Uh, because of the way they go about multiple contacts, trying to recruit these people in, they have a pretty good share of people who agree to take who agree to take take the surveys, and then there's a high what's called a cooperation rate. People who then choose to take the individual surveys they're they're uh, solicited to take. Um, and the other thing is the weighting on the back end allows us to um, to adjust for for non-response uh, to make sure that the people who do end up taking the survey, who end up in the sample, are representative of the larger population that we that we want to make inferences about. So uh, what would be the caveats that you would uh, want to uh, caution people about uh, if you were to say, okay, basically this is pretty good, but here are the caveats? Right. My my caveat would be, you know, every survey has has error in it, and there's different kinds of error, right? Just just even the, the best ex- executed sampling and 100% response rate, you, you still end up with just sampling error, which is just random differences from one sample to the next. So there's that. There's always non-response, and so that's a potential issue here as well. Um, and then there's always uh, just issues of how questions are worded, the order of questions in a survey. All of these can affect how people answer questions on a survey. Um, but so my sort of the, the, the point I would make about that is, is no survey is going to be perfect. It's about using the best tools available to do uh, to, to get the best practices in place to to make to have a survey and have a sample that's most likely to be accurate and most likely to be representative. And that includes things like we're doing here, making sure we're not leaving out people who don't have Internet access, making sure we're probability sampling, randomly sampling people, uh, making sure we're trying to deal with response rates, um, that the, how, how the company does it with you know multiple attempts to recruit people um, both into this, the panel and into the specific survey, and then also um, um, the waiting at the back end uh, to, to adjust for that. When you do all these things, you can end up with a survey that's better than when you don't do those things or you don't do all of those things. So I was uh, intrigued to find out that uh, the PDK poll, which is uh, a poll that's been around longer than our 13 years, uh, used to do all telephone polling, and then they gradually began to move to online, and now they're using the same company that we're using. Um, So... I mean, do you have any thoughts on on why that might be the case that they gravitated in that direction? I uh, I think it's because this is this is what you what you have to do in in this kind of research. If you're interested in surveys and you want to keep doing uh, surveys, you're going to have to take um, these kinds of considerations uh, seriously. And this is the way. 
the technology and the industry is moving. It's moving online. It's not to say that all approaches to online are the same, um, but the, the, the way we do this poll and now the way that PDK is doing their poll is really one of the most highly regarded uh, uh, ways of doing online polling. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a credit to the, to the, to, to the knowledge panel, and it's, it's also a credit to PDK for, for choosing to, to, to go that way. I mean, as, as you know, for the longest time, PDK was not only doing telephone polling, but they were doing it with Gallup, a very highly respected organization in, in polling today and in the history of polling. Um, but it's, it's harder and harder to do the traditional phone survey and make the kinds of claims we used to be able to make about, hey, this is the best way to do it. Um, there are just increasing difficulties, increasing costs. And if you're going to be honest about those difficulties and the deficiencies they can introduce and the errors they can introduce into the, the sample and the survey, then you're, wanna, you're going to want to consider options. And this particular way of doing online sampling is uh, essentially the, the wave of the future. So there are some advantages to online polling other than the ones you've been mentioning there, and that is you know who you're going to be talking to before you talk to them. Uh, and uh, maybe you could just tell our listeners a little bit more why that is the case. Right. So these people that agree to um, you know, most, most online platforms, including the one we use, the Knowledge Panel, um, these are people who agree to participate, usually for some period of time, to take surveys. And so the company who maintains the panel knows who knows knows where they live, uh, knows their residents, knows some basic information about them before um, that individual takes your uh, your particular survey because they've taken other surveys and because the the organization's collected some profile data on them. So in our case, the um, the the company knows um, specifically, you know, where where these individuals uh, live within a certain geographic radius and so we can we can then um, contextualize uh, our questions uh, certain questions or pieces of information we want to to incorporate into the survey and ask people about specific things about the context in which they live so the fact that we sort of have a sense of where these individuals live we can ask them about for example per pupil spending in their local school district um, and we can tell them the amount in their local school district or something else we did in this in this year's survey we wanted to ask them what they think about um, different institutions of higher education and so we have these questions you know these general questions you know how overall what do you think is the quality of you know, four-year colleges in, in the U.S., and, and that's, that's good to know. But what if you want to know what people think about this, the universities and the community colleges near them? Well, then you need to know where, the, where they live so you can ask them about those specific things. And so we, this year we actually asked people about specific, by name, universities and community colleges near them, and we were only able to do that because we knew where they live in advance. On a telephone, if we were just doing a random digit dialing, we'd have no, I mean, we would know where the area code is, but we wouldn't know what community college is or which school district uh, are near where, where a particular respondent lives. Well, this year, the poll interviewed a sample of both parents and, and their adolescent children. Uh, I, I've forgotten what ages they were. Uh, the, the students who were interviewed, was it 14 to 18 or... Well, it was actually they were recruited on the basis of whether or not they were high school students, and so the ages end up ranging somewhere from, I think the youngest is 14, just because, you know, it's probably not very often that, say, a 13-year-old would be, the survey's done, the survey was done in, in May, and so it's probably unlikely that somebody would be 
already in ninth grade and still only 13 at the end of that, that year. So they, they do end up being about 14. To, we may even have some 18-year-olds in there. Um, but the, the key condition was that the, the child was a student in high school uh, during the academic year in which the survey happened. So how many pairs of students and parents did we actually interview? And how did we get the pair? How did we get both the parent and their child? Right, that's a great question. So we have a, um, so this is in addition to that roughly 3,000 sort of main sample we have. We also had 415 pairs. Um, And so what we did is uh, we were able to, um, again, because we know some information about these individuals before they actually take our survey, um, we were able to sort of have a sense of, of making sure we could try to target some some surveys uh, to individuals that um, we knew had high school age children. Um, and then so before they actually entered the survey, we asked them to, to confirm, you know, how many, what are the ages of their students and, you know, are any of these students in high school? And if they said yes, then we asked them, would you be willing to take a survey and would you also be willing to allow your high school student um, or if they had more than one high school student, their oldest high school student, to participate uh, in the survey. And the parent would then consent to participate and also consent for their child to participate. And so the parent would take the survey, and then we would, then the, the survey, they had a prompt at the end of it that said, oh, now please um, have the child take the survey. Um, and uh, and then we would then ask the child to consent as well to, to take the survey. Um, and so that's how we were able to get pairs of a parent and their high school age child. Did you give them any incentives to uh, to participate? Yes, there is. So already, um, most on, most online survey uh, vendors uh, like the one we use provide uh, general incentives anyway to their participants. To that's how you keep them taking taking surveys. Um, so there's an incentive to to, to join and stay in, in the panel. Um, and in this case, there was an extra incentive. Um, provided if they were uh, willing to allow their child uh, to participate in, in the survey as well. Right, a free movie ticket or what? It was, so the way the knowledge panel works, they get, um, essentially they get sort of like points. Uh, they get points that are like credits that they can be used to purchase different things. Um, and so they got a set amount of points that was, I think, the equivalent of, I want to say, 5 or $10 um, to um to, to go ahead and, and, and participate in this survey themselves and their child. So Education Next likes to do survey experiments, and I think sometimes our listeners don't quite understand what a survey experiment is. So could you just run through that? Sure. So the, the idea behind a survey experiment is essentially the same as the idea of um, uh, as what you might, as, as say, medical testing, right? You don't just want to, if you want to know if a, if, a, if a particular drug or treatment works, you don't just want to, like, you know, have people who may say are suffering from some condition to take it and see how they feel. Um, you want to you want to take it, take people and um, and divide them randomly into two groups: one group that gets the treatment and one group that doesn't. And because they're randomly divided into the two groups, then you know on average there's no underlying difference between the two groups. There's, no, there's nothing that drove some individuals to get the treatment and others to avoid the treatment. Um, whether or not you get the treatment, whether or not you get the medicine is strictly just a, essentially a coin toss. And so that's the same idea in the survey experiment. So what we often do um, are experiments involving information because, you know, we want to know 
doesn't matter if people know what average salaries in uh, for teachers in their state are um, when they're thinking about pay raises for teachers. Um, doesn't matter if people know something about their local school district, you know, how much money they receive from the federal government or how much they're spending per pupil or how their schools perform on average when they're thinking about schools or education policy. Um, and so to find out if that information matters, we do the same kind of thing as in the medical uh, experiment. We randomly separate people into groups and tell some people the information and don't tell it to the other group. Um, and because we know that the only reason somebody ended up with the information or without it in our survey is essentially just a coin toss, we know that when we compare them afterwards, we, the, we can then say any differences across the group we can attribute to that piece of information, to that, to that treatment we gave them, um, because there was nothing else that determined whether or not they were in one group or the other. Well, I think it was uh, somebody, one, a former president of Harvard, I think, said that was one of the, the greatest inventions of the 20th century, this idea that you could learn something from random assignment. And uh, I, I sort of think that there's something to that. Yes, it is. It's, and, it's, um, and what's neat about implementing it this way in survey experiments, it's a, it's a, it's a, you can do lots of experiments that way um, in a survey platform. And that's also, and you can, do, sir, you can do experiments like this in any survey, no matter what the mode is. Um, but it's particularly, um, I think, uh, useful in online, experiment, online surveys to be able to do this because of the ways you can introduce information or present the information. Um, and it's you know it's just it's just a great it's a great tool because that's how we learn does information matter right if you want to know like do 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 people think do people want to raise spending for schools if they know how much they're already spending on schools there's only one way to answer that truly and that's to give the information to some people randomly and not give it to others you don't just want to ask people and find out if the people who already know think differently than people who don't know because there might be something about the kind of person who went and learned that on their own that matters for what they end up deciding. Um, and you want to control for all of that, and that's what random assignment to treatment conditions allows you to do. So one of the things that characterizes the Education Next surveys is the fact that we allow people not to t take sides. We say, do you support or oppose this, or do you neither support nor oppose it? Uh, so that's sort of like you, you can take a neutral position. You don't have to say, I don't know. You can just say, I don't want to take a position on this issue. Do you, do you like that approach or don't you? I do. I do. And I, I mean, to be fair, there is, a, there is a, a, something of a debate about this uh, in, survey research, in, the, in the survey research literature, although it tends to be more about using whether or not you should allow a don't know option um, rather than rather than being about a neutral option, um, and some people say, look, if you um, if you if you allow people that, you're essentially allowing them uh, to opt out of the question, to pick an easy default, and not actually think about what they might, where they might, you know, where they actually are on an issue, um, and so they can just kind of take the survey and be like, you know, I haven't thought about it, so I don't know, neither position, neither position. Um, but I would say that's substantively meaningful, especially when you're talking about a neutral position rather than just a don't know response, um, because a neutral position is a position. Like you can, you know, you can legitimately not have a side on an issue. And what's really, I think, one of the reasons that's really important for our project is 
many of these education issues, um, you know, you and your listeners will certainly know a lot about many of them. Uh, but the average American, there'll be a, there'll be a lot of these issues that they just aren't that aware of. Um, and we want to see how that develops over time. And so one of the things we're able to do, because we include that neutral position, is to look over over the years as how that changes. Does the, does the number of people, the share of people who pick a side, has it increased on issues over time? Um, and that's one way of seeing, like, look, education issues are becoming, this particular issue is becoming more salient. People are being more exposed about it, exposed to it. They're, they're learning about it, and now they're taking sides. And when they do, this is the direction they tended to move in. So I think it's valuable. Um, the other thing that's, uh, I think, other justification for us doing it this way is from time to time in years past, we've, we've altered, offered um, an alternative version where we've randomly assigned people to versions that don't include the neutral option. And so that allows us in those particular years to say, okay, what happens when you force people to choose? Which way do they tend to go? Um, and so by doing it both ways, we have a sense of how many people truly are on the fence. And then if we push them to decide which way would they go? Uh, and that tells us a lot more than, than you would know if you just didn't ask that, if you didn't allow that neutral position. Well, we had a big debate within the research team some years back as to whether this neutral position should be the in the middle, so you you strongly support, you somewhat support, you you neither support nor oppose, you somewhat oppose, you you know compl- strongly oppose, and or whether it should go at the end, and and I guess we now decided to put it at the ends. Because a lot of people were picking that middle position when we put it in the middle. That's true, um, and I think there's. I mean, I, I think there's a legitimate uh, debate to be had there. Um, now we went and compared, and there's some differences on questions here and there, but it doesn't dramatically. Uh, it didn't dramatically shift on every question and, and the, to the same degree. Uh, there's variation on how much people shifted when you compare the, the the year when we had it in the middle to the first, the last year we had it in the middle to the first year when we had it at the end. Um, I think by putting it at the end, there is uh, it probably makes people think of it more cognizantly as this is a position, this is a response that says. I don't have these positions, rather than I'm trying to just stay in the middle just for the sake of being in the middle. Um, so I think there's value there. And if you think about it, like, just, you know, from a linguistic standpoint, how would you ask that question? You would say, do you, do you support or suppose it or neither, right? Do you agree or do you disagree or, or neither do, agree nor disagree? So there's, you know, there's sort of language reasons to have it at the end as well. Um, it does, I mean, if there's a drawback, the drawback is we have no way of knowing for sure whether people are choosing that because it's a neutral position and they really don't have an opinion or because they just haven't thought about it and they, they just don't know what they think. Um, but truth be told, we have that same problem even if it was in the middle. So it's, it's, I, I, don't, I don't see that as uh, something that um, you know, causes me to really think about these results really uh, differently um, because we're using this neutral option or because we're putting it at the end. I think it makes sense to do it that way, um, but it's, I don't think there's just like on high we know written in stone this is the way it needs to be done. Well, one of the reasons why the Ednex poll has done so well over the years is that we've had Michael Henderson uh, as our survey director, and as you can tell from this conversation, he is uh, remarkably knowledgeable about the pros and cons of different approaches to survey research. So thank you very much, uh, Michael, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Well, thank you for having me. It's been, it's been a lot of fun.
I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern Time.